Hey, thanks for joining us here on The House Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this message. If you want to learn more about The House, check out our website at welcometothehouse.com or download The House app. Well, definitely welcome today on this 4th of July. We are so excited that we get to celebrate with you today, and we you're in for a treat. I was able to experience first service with our, our special guest, Tim Barton of Wall Builders, and we are so blessed to have him here. He is a speaker in demand, and so uh, thankfully we have a little bit of an end because we've known him for a really, really long time. And so uh, sure enough, he is also the speaker right now at Gateway Church in Dallas, which is one of the largest churches in America, uh, and so he actually videoed for them their service and came in person for our service, and so we are so blessed to have him, and we don't take that for granted, but that's one of the reasons why I want you to listen up, get your notes out. You're going to learn something today. I want to uh, encourage you to tell yourself, I'm going to learn something today, so let's just go ahead and say that. I'm going to learn something today. Okay, so he's going to share in, in, in very inspiring stories that you may or may not he- have heard the whole story of. One of the things that S- Pastor Stephen and I love partnering with wall builders is because that they are seekers of truth. And they're not just seekers of truth to keep it to themselves, but they're seekers of truth to give it to others. And so we do know that we as Christians want to seek truth. So we do that by studying the word of God. And we also do that by seeking the facts and the truth of a situation before we form an opinion. And so I don't know about you, if you've noticed, there's a lot of opinions that uh, are on social media, but it's important for us to make sure that we go past the opinion and we seek truth. And so one of the uh, things as we celebrate America today that Pastor Stephen and I believe in is that we believe that God placed us here on purpose. And so we are going to find out why we're here. We're going to be good stewards of our country. We're going to be good stewards of our community. And we are going to be agents of prayer for our country. We believe that we are here to be a blessing. And so you may hear a complaint here and there on social media, but one of the things that I believe is one of the deterrents of growth and blessing is complaining. We see that in the Old Testament. And so we as a church and as Christ followers is we're going to find, we're going to seek truth and we're going to speak life and we are going to pray for our nation and find ways that we can participate in being a solution. And so y'all give it up for my friend, Tim Barton of Wall Builders. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I, I so appreciate the Sextons and uh, it's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, I actually, everybody watching online, especially Pastor Steve, uh, hi to everybody. Don't want you to feel left out. We remembered you. You're awesome. Okay. So uh, as we get going this morning, one of the things that uh, I am very excited to talk about is as we look at the nation, uh, and, and we are celebrating Fourth of July. It's boggling to me a little bit how many Americans don't know that much, not only about American history, like even the Fourth of July. Okay, you can watch man on the street interviews and people have no idea. So first of all, like, obviously it's not us, 
but there's probably like our friends are watching online. They probably need this help, right? So the reality is, right, we're celebrating a birthday because 245 years ago, we told the king that, you know, you're cool. We're breaking up. We're done. We're going a different direction. There's somebody else we like. His name is Freedom. And so we left, right? So this is what we are doing. And even, even recognizing that we have a birthday takes us back to the American Revolution. And in the Revolution, a lot of people are even confused about the date, but 1776 is when the Declaration of Independence was done. It's presented to the American people. And this was declaring our nation was going to be different. They went through ideas and philosophies in the Declaration. But as this unfolds, one of the things that for us at Wall Builders is interesting is we study American history. We have what's considered the largest private collection of original documents. We actually own uh, letters and journals from George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Franklin and John Hancock and all these significant founding fathers. So we actually go back and we read their own original writings, but some of the history books that were done back in the 1800s. For example, there was a guy, Charles Coffin, who was born in 1820. Uh, he was considered the most significant writer during the Civil War. And at the end of the Civil War, he began to author many textbooks. And one of the textbooks he did was for kids in school, and it was the beginning of America, a history book for America. And as he gives an introduction to this history book, he was telling students, before you start reading this, there's a perspective you need to have. And one of the things he told the students, they need to think about history this way. He explained, notice that while oppressors have carried out their plans in history, there were other forces silently at work, which in time undermined their plans as if a divine hand were directing the counter plan. Now, in this introduction, he goes on and says, guys, what we're talking about is there are many moments in history that will be God moments. And if you don't know to look for these God moments, you will miss arguably the most important part of studying history. And this is what he explains. And, and actually, there's a lot more in this introduction. But I just want to point out from this short paragraph, he says, there were other forces silently at work, and it was like a divine hand that was directing the counter plan. When you look, for example, even at the revolution, you can see where things should have been going one direction and all of a sudden something happens and it goes a different direction as if there were a divine hand directing the counter plan. Let me give you an example. If you look after we do the declaration in July 1776, August, the very next month was known as the Battle of Long Island, or maybe more accurately, the retreat from Long Island, because there were 30,000 plus British soldiers. There were roughly eight or 10,000 American soldiers, and Washington has a perimeter set up. The British attack, and Washington is totally trounced. Like for a day and a half, they're just retreating, trying to hold lines. The lines keep breaking. They're backed up to the end of Long Island, okay? So the British are coming on land, they're surrounded by water, and as the British back them up, they have nowhere else to go the British general calls a timeout and says to all of his troops, 30,000 men, he says, guys, we're just going to hang out for like a day or two. We're going to rest because we're pretty tired, and, and we're going we're gonna to come up with a really brilliant plan of how to defeat the enemy. And it does make you like scratch your head like, okay, what about just going in like defeating the enemy? Like that's an easy plan. You outnumber them. Just go finish them off. He stops. In the midst of him taking this pause of timeout, as, as Washington's men are backed up at the edge of the island, the British fleet was supposed to sail in around the water and block them in. But there was a major storm that came in. And the storm had such big waves that the ships were afraid that they might be blown into rocks and, and, and they would be damaged. And so the ships stayed off from blockading Washington's troops in. That night, the storm stopped. It's peace, calm, quiet. Washington tells all of his men, you need to go find anything that floats, right? Go get boats, maybe big log sticks, anything that floats. We're going to use it, and we're going to get off the island. So as 
they are then rallying all the men to go find whatever boats they can. They begin having men row off the island. As they're rowing off the island, they are overnight bringing ships back and forth, getting men off the island. Well, the problem is that as morning begins to dawn, they still have several thousand people on this island. So at this point, they're going to be exposed with even less of their troop there to guard against the enemy. So Washington is really perplexed. We don't know what to do. Well, as dawn begins to break, the gray is showing... There's a fog that lifted from the ground, and it was described by many officers there. Actually, it's very well historically documented. You can go back and read it. So this fog begins to rise. The American officer said the fog was so thick that you could not see a man a couple feet in front of you. It was so thick. Well, Washington's like, this is great. Let's just let's keep getting men off the island. So they're continuing to row off the island. Washington himself made sure he was the very last person to step foot in a boat because he wasn't going to leave any men behind. So he's the last guy to get in a boat. He gets in a boat. As soon as the boat gets across the water to shore on the other side, the fog lifts. The British look and they go, what happened? They're all gone. They charge the camp. There's nobody there. And Washington on the other side realizes that God just showed up big time. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense that when you have superior numbers, you call a timeout in the middle of battle. It doesn't make any sense that as you are retreating and, and sun's coming up, all of a sudden this fog lifts. Like, where did this fog? Nobody knows. This was something beyond the control of man. But this is what's interesting is that actually in early history books, Charles Coffin, for example, told kids, when you study history, you need to look for moments that you recognize that wasn't the hand of man, that was the hand of God. Because if you study history and you don't look for the God moments, you're going to miss the most important thing, right? Like imagine reading the Old Testament and Moses shows up to the Red Sea and you're like, well, that was so lucky the water just parted for him. Like, no, this is a God moment, right? If you don't see the God moment, you miss the most important part. Well, this was August of 76. Let's go forward to December of 76. You have the Battle of Trenton. This is the famous crossing of the Delaware. And, and at this time in American history, if you were in the military, you enlisted for six months or a year. And at the end of six months or a year, your enlistment was up. Well, this is in December. So all of the men who've enlisted for six months or a year, their enlistment is up. And to this point, the Americans have won exactly zero battles. And Washington realizes if we don't win something, our morale was so low, people were deserting, they didn't want to be on the losing side. He says, we have to win something. And so there was a fort up in Trenton, and, and it was, there was a thousand Hessians there who were hired by the British as mercenaries, so they're on the British side. Washington says, we can take like 4,000 of our men, we'll go march at night, we'll get there, we'll surround the fort before light even comes, and then... When we're there, light will be able to capture because we have superior numbers. It'll be great. We'll get a victory. Everybody will be encouraged. Everybody will re-enlist. This was his idea. The problem was when they go to cross the Delaware, there was a massive storm that came, snowstorm. Delaware is beginning to freeze over. There's these huge pieces of ice that are floating down the river. They're not able to get all of their troops across. In fact, they only get about half of their troop across. And it was so bad, it took them so long to get across. They still had several miles to march to get to this fort that Washington realizes we're never going to make it before daylight. And the Hessians are going to see us. They're going to be prepared. We won't take them by surprise, which was the important part of the plan. So they're not sure what they're going to do, but they're just going to keep marching and try to figure it out on the way. As they're marching, a blizzard rolls in. And this blizzard was nasty, awful, terrible, intense. It was so bad that during the march, two Americans actually froze to death. Now, I've heard of people freezing to death, like sitting in snow, never while you were actually marching and moving. Okay, this is brutal conditions, but two men freeze to death. However, 
What Washington and his troops did not realize at the time was the storm was so bad that the Hessian commander called all of his troops back in the fort and said, we don't need any guards. Nobody's dumb enough to be out marching in this weather. We're fine. So they called all the men back in the fort. So they are in the fort. Literally, nobody's there. Light has already come. It's daylight, but there's still this massive blizzard. So Washington and now a smaller number of men, they surround the fort. When the Hessians find out they're surrounded, the battle lasted a couple minutes before they surrendered. Washington lost no men in the midst of this, and they identified that they were able to bring such morale to the troops. People signed up. The revolution kept going. But Washington and his generals pointed out that this was by the hand of providence because none of them could control the weather that would make the Hessians stay in their fort by the fires and not be out. Because if they'd been seen and exposed, like this could have gone very differently. But this is, again, moments where you look in American history, man does not control weather. But you can read throughout scripture, and there were many times that God controlled weather. Whether it was a peace be still moment, right? Like this is in God's realm This is what happens in American history so frequent and often. We just don't always see the story. In fact, the last major battle of the revolution was the Battle of Yorktown. And during the Battle of Yorktown, this is where the Americans surrounded Cornwallis, and and Yorktown is backed up to the ocean. Well, when Cornwallis gets surrounded by the Americans, the ocean's behind him, and the British fleet is behind him. So he's like, okay, we're fine, right? We have the fleet. We can get on our ships. We're fine. We're not going to be in trouble, except... As this attack begins on Yorktown, a massive storm blows in, and the winds were so strong, it actually blew the ships, anchors and all, out of the harbor. So literally, these ships, like, okay, no man's controlling this. The ships are being blown out of the harbor by the storm. So Cornwallis says, okay, our ships are gone. Guys, let's just, let's, let's find these little like rowboats or John boats and let's get in them and, and we'll at least get some of our men off. As these little rowboats and John boats start going out in the harbor, the waves are so choppy, the rowboats begin to overturn and they begin to sink. These soldiers begin to drown in the water. So Cornwallis says, okay, we can't retreat that way. He has nowhere to go and In the midst of this, not only does he have nowhere to go, the exact same wind that blew his ships out of the harbor was blowing behind the French fleet. And as it's blowing them out, the French fleet comes in. The French fleet allies with the Americans. They were able to come into the harbor, completely bottle up Cornwallis and get the victory. At the end of this, right, all the American officers are like, this was amazing. The hand of providence, God helped us. If you read George Washington's letters just during the American Revolution, more than 250 letters, he talks about God's hand helping them in what they did because he recognized we didn't get victory because we were awesome. We got victory because God showed up. And this is one of the things that today we, we don't see enough of those stories to recognize the God moment. But the reality is, like even we're talking about 4th of July. Why, why does this matter? Because had God not showed up, there would be no celebration on the 4th of July. Right? This is part of the importance that we've lost along the way. There was another historian. His name was George Bancroft. And, and he wrote a multi-volume set of American history. And similarly, just like Charles Coffin gave an introduction to the readers saying, hey, here's the way you should think about history. He did the same thing. George Bancroft explained to his readers the way they should view history. That God rules in the affairs of men is as certain as any truth of physical science. Okay, physical science. Like gravity. Okay, if you believe in gravity, you should believe that God governs the affairs of men because that is as true as anything in physical science is what he points out. He continued, nothing is by chance. Though men in their ignorance of causes may think so, the fortunes of a nation are not under the control of blind destiny, 
but follow the steps by which a favoring providence, calling our institutions into being, has conducted this country to its present happiness and glory. What he points out is that as you study history, there's not a coincidence that, man, how lucky were we that this weather just blew in? Nope. This is not blind destiny. There's something more significant happening. It's a God moment. And what I want to point out is, as, as, as we even, we're, we're going to tell several stories in just a moment. As we get into some of these stories, what I want to highlight for you, one of the things that we have so lost as we study history in America are the obvious God moments. Because for some reason, we think, well, we shouldn't really include that. Let me tell you, as a Christian, if you don't include it, you're being dishonest. Because the reality is God is real and he does show up. And, and this has been true if you look at the American Revolution, the War of 1812, you look at the Civil War, you can go through every conflict we've ever been in. But let me take one of my favorite examples and I'm going to go to World War II. Because if you look at World War II, there's so many obvious God moments. And, and World War II, it unfolds for America with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And this was significant because America actually was being requested to get involved in the process before Pearl Harbor was bombed. Actually, there was a shipload of Jews who were seeking refuge in America. And, and they landed in an American port. And FDR says, we're not letting them unload because if we do, then we will have taken sides and we're trying to stay uninvolved in the war. FDR literally turned this shipload of Jews around and sent them back to Europe. Okay, I do not think it's coincidence that shortly after Pearl Harbor was bombed, because I would point out, I think God was giving him an, a chance to voluntarily step in and do the right thing. And he says no, and God's like, oh, okay, well, then I'm going to make you, <laughs> right? Bombing of Pearl Harbor, we're like, oh, dang, okay, war, we're into this. This is actual video footage from the destruction of Pearl Harbor from that day. So as this unfolds, the American people are now realizing we're being drawn into something. And it's also super interesting historically that when, when we declare war on Japan, actually Japan, before they even bombed Pearl Harbor, Japan had intended to tell the Americans that they were going to war with us. Because apparently like there's some kind of like code of conduct that before you go to war with people, you're supposed to tell them. To me, that's weird. Like I feel like the element of surprise, like that's a good thing. But so literally, the ambassador from Japan in Washington, D.C., he shows up after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and he goes with a declaration of war. Literally, he goes with a declaration of war. He's like, guys, my bad. I meant to be here before we bombed you. Uh, I got stuck in traffic, but here's the declaration of war. Okay, like, I don't even know what to do with that. That's just ridiculous on every level. But we're like, oh, okay, so you're a war? Fine. So then we declared war on Japan. Well, when Italy found out we declared war on Japan, Italy was like, well, we declared war on you. We're like, cool, we declare war on you. Germany said, well, if you declare war on Japan and Italy, we declare war on you. We're like, cool, we declare war on you. In four days, there were six declarations of war. Okay, so now we are fully into World War II. As we are now fully into World War II, one of the things that becomes very significant is FDR does the State of the Union less than a month later. This is important because back then, there, there is no internet. There is no social media platform. So people's access to information was very, very different. They, they had very little knowledge of what was happening. So when FDR gets up to give the State of the Union, he's explaining to the American people what is going on. Like, why are we going to war? What, what did we ever do? This doesn't make sense to us. And FDR explains to the American people why exactly we are getting involved in the war, but specifically what this war is really about. And I'm going to play you a clip 
from his State of the Union. It's just a, a couple of seconds long. And actually in this, there's actual footage from World War II. But I want you to listen to what he tells the American people is the reason we are fighting in World War II. The world is too small to provide adequate living room for both Hitler and God. In proof of that, the Nazis have now announced their plan for enforcing their new German pagan religion all over the world. The plan by which the Holy Bible and the Cross of Mercy would be displaced by Mein Kampf and the swastika and the naked sword. Notice he said the world is not big enough for Hitler and God. Hitler wants to replace the Bible with Mein Kampf, wants to replace the cross of mercy with a swastika and the naked sword. As he says this, one of the things that happens is the U.S. government printing office then comes out with this poster. It was sold to, to raise money for the effort, but notice, right, you see the swastika on that jacket. It's a knife stabbing a Bible, and it says, this is the enemy. What was very clear to the American people was World War II was not simply a battle between nations. It literally was a battle of ideologies. It was a battle against the very principle, the heart and soul of Christianity. This is what FDR is communicating to the people. And actually, there were hundreds of posters that the federal government made and printed. They would sell these, try to raise money for the war effort. But if you start looking at some of these posters, it's remarkable how many of these posters had Christian content, Christian right imagery with what was going on. And, and this is where even you can read some of the things that's there, like deliver us from evil. That's from Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, right? Deliver us from evil. This is that notion but it's because it was very clear in the minds of many involved this battle was not merely, again, a battle of nations. This was a battle of religions, a battle of ideologies. As this is unfolding, what becomes very interesting is the American people begin signing up in droves because of what happened at Pearl Harbor, right? We want to get justice. We want to defend our nation. And so people begin signing up. One of the very cool things that happened is everybody that signed up in the military, they were given a Bible, specifically a pocket New Testament. In the front of all those Bibles, it had an introduction and encouragement from the president, FDR, and there were different Bibles given to different branches of the military. This one went to the army. What's really interesting is this one went to the Navy. And if you notice on the left, there's an American flag and there's something above the American flag. Now, that seems super weird because flag etiquette says nothing's supposed to fly higher than the American flag, except in the Navy. In the Navy, still to this day, part of flag code etiquette is there's only one flag that can fly higher than the American flag, and that is the Christian flag that announces church service so that all sailors can know when church is happening. Literally, even on the ships back in World War II, they would have those flags flying to let people know, hey guys, church is going on. If you want to go to church, just an announcement. This actually, the Christian flag is the only thing flying higher than the American flag. It's kind of a crazy thought, but literally, this was part of our ideology and understanding at that point in America was the reality of the battle wasn't, again, it wasn't just nations. Faith was a big part of what was happening. As this is all unfolding, D-Day is, is one of the major battles that we certainly remember. And, and I'm, obviously, I'm jumping around as we go. I'm making major leaps in the history of World War II. This is not like your World War II history class. So I'm just highlighting some big moments along the way. As D-Day unfolds, it, it, there's a couple interesting perspectives of this. One of them is, as, as the soldiers are going in, the soldiers do not have the reconnaissance to know what they're going into. 
They, they don't even know the ground they're taking. Now, some of the officers had had people that on some level had gone and scattered it out. So they had some landing maps. So they had a vague idea of where maybe there were machine gun nests, of, of where there were different encampments and emplacements. But they really didn't know what they were stepping into. And not that I'm endorsing this movie necessarily in church, but Saving Private Ryan actually gives you a pretty good feel for what happened on that day of this D-Day invasion. And so as these guys are going in, there's all kinds of casualties, there's all kinds of fatalities, lots of damage. There's hundreds of thousands of Americans engaged in this invasion. And as the invasion happens, and there's, there was, it was the largest naval invasion in world history, but there's lots of different things happening at the same time. This is an actual picture from that invasion. So that is a lot of people involved in this invasion. As this happens, the American people have no idea this is happening because there was an old adage that loose lips sink ships. The thought was, if people have too much information, they might be inclined to tell you something to somebody, and we knew there actually were spies in America at the time, and so we didn't want the spies to get the information, and they might get it back to their people, and then they would know, and they actually could could kill Americans, could sink the ships by getting the information, so no Americans knew about this D-Day invasion. Until, as the invasion was happening, President FDR got on radio, national radio, every radio station broadcast this, and he began telling the American people what was happening on this D-Day invasion. But as he is telling them what is happening, he then concludes that as this is happening, there's something we should be doing. He says, we need to pray as this goes on. He then leads the nation in a six and a half minute prayer. I'm going to show you just a part of this. Again, as I show you this clip, you're going to hear his prayer, but there's actual footage from the D-Day invasion and from some of the surrounding things happening at the time. But listen to what he tells the American people as the D-Day invasion is happening. This is from FDR. And so in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It really is remarkable. As he's doing this, again, one of the things I would point out that's significant as you look at American history is obviously when those moments that God shows up happen, we want to identify those. But it's also worth noting that as a nation, we used to pray for those God moments. That we knew if stuff was happening, guys, right now the most important thing we can do, we got to pray. Literally the president of the United States led America in prayer for six and a half minutes. And this is what's happening during that invasion. There's a lot of stories that we can talk about, a lot of things we could go into. But as you go through the D-Day invasion, as we begin going through Europe, one of the, the next major battles actually is the Battle of the Bulge. And at the Battle of the Bulge, one of the interesting things that, that unfolds is as this happens, the end of the year, it's Christmas time, it's winter, conditions are miserable, 
After we landed in Normandy, the Allied forces begin trying to push the Germans out of France. And as they're doing this, they, they're trying to have a line that the Germans can't, again, penetrate and get through. So we're really trying to push them on one side. The Russians were coming on the other side. So we're, we're trying to catch them in the middle, right? So we've got them bottled up. Well, as this is happening, when you have the Battle of the Bulge, one of the challenges that was unfolding for the Allied forces, specifically for the Americans, is there was really bad storms. And the rain was so bad that we were not able to get our tanks out. They, they were getting stuck in marshes. They were stuck in mud. Uh, we were not able to get our planes up to fly. And so the Germans were able to advance, and, and they were starting to penetrate the line. And the thought was, if they get through then they, if they're able to take France back, then we're going to have to go back and start the whole thing over. This would cost countless lives, right? Add who knows how long under the war. As this is unfolding, General Patton has this idea. And you actually can go back. You can read this in his journal because it was not the only time he did this. Actually, during those several months, there were three different occasions in his journal where he said that we need to pray. But not just that we need to pray. He actually called General James O'Neill, who was the chief of all the chaplains of the American forces. So this guy's in charge of all the chaplains. He calls him in and he says, O'Neill, he says, do our men pray? And O'Neill at first says, well, yes, sir. There's, there's, there's no atheists in foxholes. Everybody prays. He says, no, 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 no. Like, do, do, do they pray regularly? He said, well, sir, we, I mean, we, we, we've been in tents for weeks, uh, you know, with the rain and the, and the bad weather. So... I don't know how much they're praying right now because they're not under fire. I know when we go back to battle, they will pray. He says, you don't understand what I'm asking. He says, I'm asking, are they praying right now? Because if we don't start praying, this weather might not change and we might not be able to win this. So he says, do you have a prayer for weather? Now, back then they actually had a prayer book, right? And there's different topics. So General O'Neill opens up the prayer book and he looks and says, no, sir, there's no prayer for weather. So Patton tells General O'Neill, then you need to write a prayer for weather because we need this weather to change. So he writes a prayer for weather. This is actually the prayer that he wrote. It says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that armed with thy power we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish thy justice among men and nations. Amen. Okay. Patton's third army, there was 250,000 plus soldiers. So Patton tells O'Neill, you take this prayer card and you print enough that every single soldier in the third army gets one. And then on this day, he picked a specific day. He said, on this day, I want all the men to begin praying that prayer. So all the men got that prayer card. Patton said, on this day, I want them all to start praying. And they did. And within hours, the rain stopped. They were able to get their planes in the air, and tanks were able to start working again because without rain, they'd begin to dry up, and, and we were able to win this battle. Now, it's also worth noting on the other side of this card, it actually had General Patton's signature. There was a Christmas greeting for him. It says, to each officer and soldier in the 3rd Army or Third United States Army, I wish a Merry Christmas. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion, or duty, and skill in battle. We march in our might to complete victory. May God's blessing rest upon each of you on this Christmas day. 
So, so that's the backside of the card. This went to all 250,000 soldiers. What's super interesting is that this was not the only time Patton called on his third army to pray. There's a, a couple other events which are super interesting because it reminds me, if you remember the story of Joshua in the Bible, where Joshua asked that God would hold the sun still in the sky for him to be able to do more battle and victory. Patton literally says, like, it's in his prayer, it's in his journal. It's not a prayer journal, it's in his journal because there's some curse words, so it's not really a prayer journal. But it's in his journal, right? In his journal, he said that I went to God and I prayed, God, give me four days of clear weather because in four days I can win the battle. And he says, God gave me four days of clear weather and we won the battle. Another entry, he says, I prayed to God to give me seven days of clear weather because I knew for seven days. And literally, like this is Patton in his own journal talking about he went to God and asked for prayer. The prayer was answered, the weather changed, and they were able to win these battles. Well, at the end of the Battle of the Bulge, General Patton calls General James O'Neill back in, the, the guy who's in charge of all the chaplains, and the guy who actually wrote the prayer card. He gave General James O'Neill a bronze star for what he did in the battle. The only thing he did in the battle was wrote a prayer card. Literally, this dude got a bronze star for writing a prayer, but it was because that prayer was answered. And this, again, is one of those moments. If you look back, if you just look at the story of history, specifically the story of God's involvement in America, you will miss the most important aspects if you don't recognize the moments that God showed up. Because had God not showed up, it would have gone very differently. And the things that we appreciate, enjoy, or the blessings, liberties we have today, they would not be the same had God not showed up. And this is where, as you look back through history, it used to be that we knew to look for these God moments, to look when God was doing, when God was moving, and even pray for those moments, that God, we need your help. We need to pray right now for God's help. We've forgotten a lot of that in the way we study and tell history today. But let me give you one more example, probably one of my favorite examples from World War II. Dwight Eisenhower was the commander-in-chief of all the Allied forces. Okay, Dwight Eisenhower was the guy in charge of the D-Day operation. He's the guy determining decisions of, of who's going where. Like he's telling Patton, you go here, don't go there. This guy's making every single decision. What's really interesting is if you back up in his life, he grew up in Kansas. He originally was born in Texas, but then when he was a, a, a young kid, his family moved up into Kansas. When he was 13 years old in Kansas, he was running on their family farm. He fell down and he scraped his knee. And, and like getting a knee scrape, that's part of being a boy, right? It's part of childhood. I mean, I, I don't know, like... I'm not saying like I'm anti-helmets on bicycles. I just grew up in an era when that wasn't a thing, right? And like, that's just what happens. You scrape your wrists and your elbows and your knees, it's fine. But we also grew up in an era where there was Neosporin, right? There was antiseptics, there's antibiotics. Back then, if you had a cut or a scrape, if it got infected, it actually could be lethal. Well, when he was 13 years old, and this is actually a, a family picture, so that's Dwight over on the left. When he was 13 years old, he's running on the farm, he gets a scrape, it got infected. He didn't tell anybody. So that week, his leg begins to bother him, it's giving him trouble, he didn't want to make a big deal about it, he wanted to be tough. Well, Sunday came around, and it was time for the family to go to church. So mom tells everybody, get dressed, we're going to church. So he goes and gets dressed, except he's just feeling terrible. So he tells his mom, I feel so bad, I don't feel good. So mom says, okay, you can stay home and rest, we'll go to church, when we come back, we'll check on you. The record says they left that morning to go to church. It says when they returned that evening, I want you to pause, okay? I don't know how long church was, but when you're gone all day, right? Like that's a different kind of church service, okay? So 
He's gone all day, or parents are gone all day. They get home. Well, mom goes to check on him that night. She goes up to the room, goes upstairs, and goes into where his bed is, and he's laying with a fever, in and out of consciousness on bed, like delirious. Mom screams, freaks out, calls dad. He comes up. Dad says, okay, I'm going to get the doctor. Dad gets a horse and buggy. He rides to town, gets Doc Conklin. Doc Conklin comes back, and at this time, they don't know what's wrong with Dwight. They, they just know that he's sick in bed, something's going on. So the doctor's trying to figure out what's going on. So he's kind of feeling him, and he feels, oh, his leg is really swollen. So they say, okay, we need to take his pants off. His leg was so swollen, they had to cut his pants off. They couldn't get it on the swollen part of his leg. He was wearing boots. They had to cut his boot off his foot. His foot was so swollen. And as they get to where they can look at his leg, they see it's purple and black from where that cut was. And the purple and black is running all the way up his thigh. And Doc Conklin says, that's an infection. And if that infection reaches his core, that's likely going to kill him. He says, I think we can save his life, but we're going to have to amputate his leg. Mom and dad are like, hey, it's fine. Save his life. Do what you have to do. So Doc Conklin says, okay, then I'm going to need to run back to town because I need to get my saw so I can come back to amputate his leg. Okay, let me give you a little glimpse into history. Okay, during the Civil War, you could not be a surgeon in the Civil War if you could not perform an amputation in less than a minute, which meant you had to have a really sharp knife because you have to cut through all of the meat, and then you had to get your saw and cut through the bone, and then you had to carterize it in less than a minute because what they discovered during the Civil War was that if it took longer than a minute, you're not sedated for this, right? Like, you're around for this whole thing. The notion of, like, biting the bullet, yeah. Terrible for your teeth, goes back to amputations, okay? Like, this was the idea, bite down something hard, scream, whatever else. If it took longer than a minute, you would have gone into so much shock that you would actually die from shock, not even from blood loss or whatever else. So amputations have to be really fast. Well, Doc Conklin's like, I can do it. It's no problem. A minute, we'll have his leg off. Doc Conklin goes to town to get the saw. Now, Dwight was conscious long enough to hear the doctor talk about a saw and his leg, and he's like, I'm out, right? I don't want no part of this. So Dwight begins screaming. His older brother, Edgar, comes in the room. And, and Edgar's trying to calm Dwight. But Dwight's telling him, look, I, I don't want him to take my leg. I would rather die than lose my leg. Now, I understand the sentiments of a 13-year-old boy, because I think probably many of us would be in a similar situation. And Edgar's probably trying to talk him down. Like, bro, we want you to live. If it saves your leg, right? I mean, if it saves your life, we can lose your leg. But Dwight's convinced. He says, I would rather die than lose my leg. And somewhere along the way, he makes Edgar promise that he won't let the doctor take his leg. So Doc Conklin comes back. He goes upstairs, and he goes to Dwight's room, and Edgar blocks the door. And Doc Conklin says, Edgar, get out of the way. He says, sorry, Doc. I gave my brother my word. You can't go in. Now, let me also point out, every time I read this story, I just wonder, like, where were mom and dad in this scenario? <laughs> right? Like, it's super confusing to me. But Dr. and Edgar have this argument. And Edgar's like, no, I'm not letting you in. And you can imagine, the doctor's probably at some point trying to use like some psychology. He's like, Edgar, your brother's going to die, and it'll be your fault. I could save you. Like, there has to be something going on. And, and Edgar's like, not letting you in. So the doctor turned to leave, and it says he was super frustrated. So as he turns to leave, he threw up his hand in frustration. As he's going downstairs out the door, he said, the only thing that'll save this boy's life now is a miracle. He slammed the door behind him and left. But when he said the only thing that will save this boy's life is a miracle, it was like a light bulb moment for mom and dad. They're like, we need to be praying. So mom, dad, and Edgar knelt down at the bed, and they began to pray for Dwight. 
over the next several weeks, every single morning, every single evening, the family would pray for Dwight. At the end of the first week, the swelling went down in his leg and the discoloration was starting to leave. At the end of two weeks, there was nothing visible on the leg. There was no discoloration, no scratch mark, no swelling. They called Doc Conklin back out. He says, I don't know what happened. It must be a miracle. Yes, that is exactly what happened. It was, in fact, a miracle. And, and the reason to me, this is even so fascinating, is because we could look at this and say, well, that's just a 13-year-old boy. What's the big deal? Because God had a much bigger plan for that 13-year-old boy than anybody knew. Had Dwight lost his leg, he never would have been in the military, much less become the commander of all the Allied forces during World War II. He's the guy credited with winning World War II. Winston Churchill said that he would, Dwight was better than any other military officer, general, anybody in World War II. Winston Churchill said that is the best mind in World War II. Wow. This dude was brilliant, and there is no doubt about it. Had God not showed up, this story would have gone very differently. This, again, is the point. I can go literally through hundreds of examples of had God not shown up, it would have gone very differently. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about our nation is, oh my gosh, so many imperfect people in this nation, actually all of us, so you made the list, you are also imperfect, okay? Our nation is full of imperfect people, and there have been moments where there were some really evil, sinful, wicked people who were doing really sinful, evil, wicked things in this nation, but one of the things that's so interesting to me is how often... You see God showing up as Christians, as the church is standing up and doing something, as they're calling on God, saying, God, we need a miracle. And God shows up, and God does a miracle. Well, after Dwight finishes World War II, he, he gets elected to be the president of the United States. And one of the things that's really interesting about his presidency, he is the only president that during his inauguration, he actually led his own prayer. Now, a lot of presidents have had prayer at the inauguration, but usually they bring a pastor in to do this. Dwight actually led his own prayer. Actually, I'm going to show you part of this prayer. This is actual footage from Dwight's inauguration where he led his own prayer. My friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts that I deem appropriate to this moment, would you permit me the privilege of uttering a little private prayer of my own? And I ask that you bow your heads. Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, my associates in the, my future associates in the executive branch of government join me in beseeching that thou will make full and complete our dedication to the service of the people in this throng and their fellow citizens everywhere. Give us, we pray, the power to discern clearly right from wrong and allow all our words and actions to be governed thereby and by the laws of this land. Especially we pray that our concern shall be for all the people, regardless of station, race, or calling. May cooperation be permitted and be the mutual aim of those who, under the concepts of our Constitution, hold to differing political faiths so that all may work for the good of our beloved country and thy glory. Amen. 
One of the things that's interesting to me about this, first of all, uh, I mentioned that we have at Wall Builders a very large private collection of original artifacts. We actually own his handwritten prayer that he prayed that day at his inauguration. So a really cool piece of history. But what's super fascinating, people did not know at the time why he did that, right? Why, why did he lead the nation in prayer? Like, they're not against it. They just didn't really know why he did it because normally you'd have a pastor or somebody else do that. It wasn't discovered until after his death when somebody was looking through his journal. In his journal, he actually contemplates why he did what he did. And one of the things he explains is that he was looking at America, and, and at the end of the war, because people had seen so much death and hardship and, and so many pa- families that had pain and loss, and, and, and there was, he said, a spiritual darkness over America. He said he was afraid people were forgetting God, and he was afraid America was becoming too secular. So he wanted to do something to help remind Americans about who God was. So in the midst of him reminding Americans, he said, well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't feel like I can really preach a sermon. He said, but I'm a Christian, so I can pray. And and, and so I'll I'll remind America about what we should be about, remembering who God is. Now, it's, I think, worth noting, if he thought we were too secular back then, he would be shocked with where we are today, right? But, But here's what's interesting, is as you follow his presidency, he does a lot of really remarkable things that that were really precedent setting for even what we still do or know in America today. And we didn't really know. Americans really didn't know why he would do all these things until his journal came out. And he said, I wanted to help people remember who God was. One of the things that started under him was the National Prayer Breakfast, where they said every single year, we're going to take a day and we're going to come and we're going to cry out to God. We're going to pray and ask God for help. We're going to invite all the leaders from the nation. We'll even invite leaders from around the world to come together and we're going to pray so we take time to remember God. What's awesome about this is one of the prayers they pray every single year at the prayer breakfast is the prayer that George Washington wrote. When George Washington finished the American Revolution, he turned in his resignation papers, and at the very end of his resignation paper, Washington wrote a prayer. It was his prayer for America. That prayer is prayed at every single one of these national prayer breakfasts, and I actually would encourage you another time, you ought to look up, read that prayer. It's really cool and profound. Well, Eisenhower did many other things. Eisenhower attended church in Washington, D.C., and his pastor was the Reverend George Doherty, and George Doherty was a recent immigrant to America. And George Doherty told that he had talked to his child one day after school, and he asked his son, he said, hey, what did you do in school today? And his son said, well, we opened the morning with prayer, and then we said the Pledge of Allegiance. And he said, I asked my son, well, what's the Pledge of Allegiance? And you can imagine, right? It sounds like, Dad. He's like, I don't know what it is. He said, I did not know what the Pledge of Allegiance was, so my son told me. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. There was no under God yet. And he said, when I heard that, he said, I thought that that could have been the pledge to any nation of the world. He said, that could have been the pledge to the Soviet nation, to right, any, anybody else. He says, but it occurred to me what makes America different is America is a nation under God. He said, it further occurred to me that there's no way you should ever pledge allegiance to anybody or anything that's not first submitted themselves to God. So the following Sunday, he delivered this sermon. The title of the sermon was Under God. On the front row was President Dwight Eisenhower. As he delivers this sermon about what makes America unique and different is we are under God. And as Americans, as Christians, we should never say we're going to submit to anything or anybody that's not first submitted themselves to God. He delivers a sermon. Dwight Eisenhower, at the end of the service, called his cabinet together. He called congressmen and senators together. He said, guys, 
We need to put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And so under Dwight Eisenhower, under God was put into the Pledge of Allegiance, which is also worth noting, he learned that from his pastor, which is also kind of a cool connection in American history. Well, Dwight continued on with his theme of helping Americans remember God. At the U.S. Capitol building, he built a chapel for all congressmen and senators to be able to go and pray. He said before they go and vote, they might want the opportunity to go and hear from God about how they should vote on an issue, and they need a place to do that. So he built this prayer chapel in the Capitol, and the stained glass behind it is... George Washington, it, it depicts him kneeling uh, kind of like he was at Valley Forge, but the verse around it is, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust, Psalm 16.1. That is still actively used today. I've been with many members of Congress up in D.C. We've gone to it. We've seen them actually praying and using this for a Bible study, a prayer room. Like, this is amazing. It still exists and is used today. It was put there by Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower is also the guy who put in God we trust on the currency. Back up under Abraham Lincoln, they actually put in God we trust on a couple of different coins we had in America. But Dwight says, we're putting it on all of our money. We want to make sure we're seeing it every single day in God we trust. He's also the guy that worked to get in God we trust as our national motto. And I did not mention this in the first service, but I will point out, Arkansas led the way in 2017. You guys passed state legislation that made... This, the state motto as well, that could be displayed in every single public school and government building in the state. It is not often that a Texan will give props to Arkansas. <laughs> but I'm giving you guys props. That was really cool, right? But this is, this is because even in your state, you had people that recognized the importance of remembering God, of putting God first, of kids seeing and remembering that it's actually in God we trust. All of this starts under Dwight Eisenhower. And again, people didn't know at the time why he even cared about all this. His journal, when it was discovered later, it was revealed in his journal. He was afraid America was becoming too secular, and he wanted Americans to remember who God was. And this is one of the things that I want to point out is, as we celebrate 4th of July weekend, and maybe you did things on Friday or Saturday, maybe tonight you're doing fireworks and a fellowship and food, and that's awesome. As we celebrate 4th of July, I would point out the one thing that we ought to remember the most is had it not been for God consistently showing up on behalf of our people in this nation, there would be no 4th of July to celebrate. As much as we talk about the fact, obviously, we, we know Jesus said he came to set a liberty to captives, right? We know the Apostle Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. We know God cares about freedom, and we know spiritual is way more important than temporal. We get it. Yeah. Check. I'm there. But I also want to acknowledge that I love being in a nation where we have levels of temporal freedom unlike any other nation in the world. We have more religious liberty, more freedoms, more choices in America than anywhere else, and none of those would have happened had God not consistently showed up. As we celebrate freedom, you need to remember in more ways than one, it's only because of God. It's only because of Christ that we have freedom. And I also want to point out that in the midst of God showing up, there's another reason we have freedom, and it's because people were willing to pay such a high price to secure freedom. In fact, if we look back at the American Revolution, one of the things that, that's very significant looking back, uh, George Washington, considered the most brutal winter uh, during the American Revolution was Valley Forge. And it's not because the temperature was necessarily colder than at any other time. It's because the Americans had to spend a winter largely out in the snow without having blankets, without having uh, proper clothing, oftentimes not even having enough fuel to keep fires going at night in the midst of snow at wintertime. And so George Washington used to walk around his troops every night trying to encourage them, trying to edify them and build them up. And Washington wrote 
about what he had seen just during that winter. And here's part of what George Washington wrote about the winter at Valley Forge. No history can furnish an instance of an army suffering such uncommon hardships as ours have done. To see men without clothes to cover their nakedness, without blankets to lay on, without shoes by which their marches might be traced by the blood from their feet. There's actually British officers who in their writings talked about, they could tell where the Americans had been because they could track the bloody footprints in the snow because so many Americans, not only did we not have proper outerwear and clothing, many Americans didn't even have boots at that time. They were wrapping cloth around their feet. I mean, just awful conditions, but this is what the Americans were going through. And almost as often without provisions as with, marching through frost and snow and at Christmas time, taking up their winter quarters within a day's march of the enemy without a house or hut to cover them until they could be built, and submitting to it all without a murmur is a mark of patience and obedience, which in my opinion can scarce be paralleled. Washington talked about what he saw his men do, the price that they paid for freedom. And obviously, as we look throughout our military history, there are so many people that have paid such high prices so that our freedom could be prevailed, that it could be preserved, right? So that we could enjoy the blessings and benefits. And, and obviously, our nation's not perfect. There's no doubt about it. But this is one of the incredible things I even love about this church and this ministry is that every time you look at an imperfection, if you see evil in American history, I would always point out the question you ought to ask is how did those evils end in American history? Without exception, you will always find the Christians, the churches, and the pastors who were leading the opposition to stop those evils. And this is where, again, the reason I love this ministry is because one of the themes is that we need to be the one. That God has called us and raised us up to be the one. And I would tell you, it's even interesting, if you go back to Valley Forge, one of the things George Washington, he delivered a standing order to his troops at Valley Forge. And this, in, in the middle of the toughest winter, right, the, the toughest moment for many of these guys in the entire battle, this is what he told them he thought was the most important thing. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. He told the troops, guys, all that you're going through, we're so grateful. But as much as we care about you being a patriot, it's even more important that you're a Christian. Yeah. Because as much as we want to celebrate freedom here in America, we recognize the true freedom that matters is the freedom that Christ offers. And this is something that as we celebrate freedom on 4th of July, and I think you should celebrate freedom. We're not celebrating a perfect nation because perfect nations don't exist. Right. But we can celebrate how a perfect God continually showed up and helped this imperfect nation do really special things, moving on behalf of this nation, moving in our own lives. How many times has God showed up in our own life? We celebrate those moments. And on 4th of July, we celebrate freedom in more than one way. And I would tell you, if you guys, if you want to see more about part of this story, we have a new book called uh, The American Story. But we start with Christopher Columbus. We go through the end of slavery in America. And we just unfold and tell these stories where you can see these aren't perfect people that are anywhere in the history of America. But there are so many examples of people like Eisenhower, like Patton, these people that turn to God, that recognize we need God's help in these moments. And there's so many times that God showed up and God did something really cool and really special. Today, we don't see those stories. And this is one of the things I love so much about our nation's history. America, more than any other nation, apart from maybe Israel, has more stories and moments where God showed up. And had God not showed up, the story would have gone very differently. As we celebrate 4th of July weekend, one of my favorite weekends throughout the entire year. But I'm always reminded that what we are celebrating is not just how special America is. We are celebrating 
how special God is. And because of God's blessings, it allows America to enjoy those blessings as well. Right? This is what we are celebrating, the movement of God in this nation. And we also are praying that God continues to move and that God would continue to use us to be the solution for the problems around us. This nation is not perfect, but who knows But that we've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this, that God has called us to be the solution. I am so grateful to live in a nation where we have freedom, but I'm so grateful even more than just the nation I live in for the times that God continues to show up, that God continues to help and intervene on our behalf. And as we close, I just want to pray for our nation, but I want to pray for us too, that we continue to remember God and that God continues to show up. Amen? God, we thank you so much that you've allowed us to live in a nation where we have the freedom to come and worship you, that we can, God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. God, we can come and have a conversation with you. We can have a relationship with you. God, I thank you for your faithfulness in our life. God, I thank you that even if we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny or disown yourself. It's who you are. God, thank you for your faithfulness, for the moments you've showed up in our life, the moments you showed up for this nation. And God, we never want to forget you. We want to remember who you are. And God, we're asking even again that you would show up again in this nation. God, that you would stir up your church, that we would be stirred up to hunger and thirst righteousness. God, that we would put you first, that we would seek your ways. And God, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would strengthen us, that we could go forward and be the one to make a difference in this nation, that we could be the ones to stand up against evil, against sin, against injustice. God, use us to be the one and continue to show up for us and for this nation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear how this message impacted you. Feel free to let us know on the Contact Us tab of the house website. We hope you have a great week.